0: welcome back to the bulwark goes to hollywood i am sunny bunch culture editor at the bulwark Uh, i'm very pleased to be joined today by matthew belloni uh he is the author of the newsletter what i'm hearing uh over at the new puck.news which is a new digital media outlet uh it's launching officially over labor day sign up for his newsletter sign up for uh, puck when it when it launches officially i i guarantee you will not be disappointed um uh he is formerly the editor of the hollywood reporter uh and an entertainment lawyer i want to i want to talk a little bit about your career in entertainment lawyering uh when we when we get going here um but uh he he covers the inside a conversation about money and power in hollywood thank you for being on the show really appreciate it no problem uh, so I, the, the the reason I had reached out to you, and I, and I and I think this is like kind of the big story right now is Scarlett Johansson's uh, lawsuit against Disney, which I, I I feel like is a pretty rare thing. You don't see a ton of it. Uh, as you mentioned in your newsletter, there's there's usually a lot of behind the scenes, uh, you know, this goes to arbitration, this sort of thing. Um, do we do we think? Do you think this is going to open up a floodgates, or is it kind of the last gasp for big back-end paydays uh, that that the stars are used to getting?
1: I think it already has opened the floodgates. I mean, we haven't seen other stars coming forward to sue, but I know for a fact that the representatives for tons of other stars have questioned Disney and others about their strategies for streaming. I mean, the tension here is not unique to Scarlett Johansson. The incentive for entertainment companies right now is to build up their streaming services, yet their talent is being paid on a compensation structure that is based mostly on the box office system. So you have an inherent tension there when the interests of the company and the star are not aligned.
0: Well, let's uh, dive into exactly what she is suing over. Because I mean, I I don't think people necessarily understand how, uh, you know, Hollywood contracts are structured, especially for somebody at the, the tier of Scarlett Johansson, you know, who's in a movie that's expected to gross $800 Eight hundred million dollars, let's say, or or you know, upwards of a billion, a billion two, whatever. Um, how how is that sort of contract usually structured, and what does she lose out on when it goes uh, to simultaneous release day and date with both Disney Plus and theaters? Well, there's a number of ways that these contracts can be structured. The traditional way is that the star will get an upfront
1: payment. And then we'll get a percentage of revenue that the film grosses in all different windows, whether it's at the box office, on um, home video, on television, you know, the waterfall of revenue down the line. Marvel is a pretty unique situation because of the success that it has had over the past 10, 15 years. They don't do traditional backends, what they do is They give box office bonuses to the stars based on certain thresholds of revenue that is generated. Sometimes that is all they give. Sometimes that's an advance against an eventual gross participation down the line. But in this case, according to the complaint, Scarlett Johansson got, got money up front and got box office bonuses at different thresholds. We've learned from reporting in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere and including Disney's Statement that they put out against Scarlett Johansson when she sued that she was paid $20 million upfront to do the movie. And the box office bonuses escalated to the point where she could have earned an additional $50 million if the film did what most people would expect a Marvel standalone movie to do. Mm -hmm. What happened was that the pandemic hit and Disney and other studios started changing the release structure for their films Disney has a big incentive to build up Disney+, Plus, which they see as the future of the company. So they put the movie, Black Widow, on Disney+, Plus same day it was in theaters, for an additional $30 upcharge. And according to Scarlett Johansson's complaint, what that did was it incentivized people to go to Disney+, and she didn't share in that revenue to the same extent that she would have if she had gone, uh, if the movie had gone to theaters exclusively. Now, Disney's response to that is, hey, it's a pandemic. We had to change it up, you know, be light on our feet. This movie was not going to do a billion dollars if it was exclusive in theaters because some people just aren't willing to go to theaters right now. And there's the additional argument that what she did or what Disney did was they took the money that people spent on the premium access, the premier access tier, the $30, they put that into her box office pool. So let's say that movie ends up doing $100 million in home video revenue on the premier access tier. That movie would be, that money will be included in her tally of box office revenue. So they said, hey, you are benefiting from what we're doing at home. So don't complain. Now, obviously, that's not the same as box office revenue because for every five people that watch at home for one thirty dollars charge, that's you know, five $15 movie tickets that aren't sold. And that's repeat viewers that aren't going back to the theater to see it over and over, which Marvel fans typically do. Yeah. That's not accounting for the piracy that was rampant when they put the movie online the same day as it was in theaters. And indeed, we are seeing the revenue for Black Widow in, in theaters dramatically lower than you would expect from a Marvel movie. So is that because of the pandemic? Is that because of Disney Plus? Is it because of superhero fatigue or some other factor we're not accounting for? Don't know. But the, the argument in the lawsuit is that by putting it day and date on Disney Plus, Scarlett Johansson was cheated out of the revenue that she would have gotten from a box office exclusive. And Disney is not sharing the appropriate revenue that they should from Disney Plus.
0: Now, uh, would you uh, looking at this, you know, kind of from the outside as a as somebody with experience in the in the world of Hollywood lawyering, do you do you think that this lawsuit survives as a lawsuit or do you think it'll get kicked back to the arbitration process, which I know is a, a big part of all these contracts?
1: Sure, and 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 arbitration would be a natural venue for this because her contract has an arbitration clause, but she did something legally interesting and what she did was she didn't sue Marvel, which is the entity that the contract is with. She sued Disney, which owns Marvel, for interfering with the contract she has with Marvel. And by doing that, that's a separate legal cause of action that isn't dependent, arguably, on the arbitration clause. So they will they will argue that this is not a breach of contract action. It's a breach. It's an uh, she was uh, Marvel was uh, uh, tortiously interfered with, mm-hmm. meaning disney interfered with the contract between marvel and scarlett johansson um we'll see if a judge buys that don't know because clearly there's a reason why they are doing this and the disney lawyers will argue that this is a contract dispute between uh marvel and johansson and it should go to arbitration for the contract but we'll see if that there's there, there's law on both sides of suit of this issue
0: Okay. Yeah. I I mean, it's it's a really interesting uh, dispute because, you know, we uh, watching from the outside have seen uh, how Warner Brothers had to kind of deal with talent and and make them happy and whole uh, after the move to HBO Max. Um, Could you could you talk about that a little bit and how that might uh, play into what everybody is thinking in the in the in the Scarjo situation, and just really in in the Hollywood uh, world in general as people look at you know how how the economics of streaming versus you know box office paydays are going to work.
1: Yeah, that was one of the interesting things about the lawsuit is because there's a model here for how to handle these stars in a way that doesn't cause them to sue you when. Warner Media, which owns Warner Brothers and HBO, when they announced that all the 2021 movies would go directly to HBO Max for no additional upcharge the same day they're in theaters, everyone went nuts in Hollywood. The talent freaked out. The agents put out statements. Partially it was because nobody knew they were doing this in advance. It was just sort of dropped on everybody uh, unilaterally, but partially because there are some major, major stars in these movies That counted on box office, Denzel Washington, Margot Robbie, uh, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda. You can count them. these people had a a serious interest in these movies doing well in theaters. So Warners went to them and they they said up front that we're going to deal with this. But I think they didn't realize the extent of the backlash that they were going to have to deal with. And the journal reported that it was about 200 million dollars in additional buyouts that they did. So they went to these stars like Denzel and Margot Robbie and said, okay, we're going to pretend that your movie was a hit in theaters, and we're going to pay you what your participation or your box office bonuses would have been had this movie been a hit in theaters, and that's going to be your buyout, and we will then release the movie however we want, and you don't have to worry about it. And that seemed to go over well. I mean, it's much more akin to what Netflix does. Netflix does a buyout of talent. They take your fee and they add 20% or whatever the, the buyout is for your profit participation. And then Netflix can release it on the streaming service without any kind of back-end payment due to the stars. Netflix has gotten criticized for that because obviously there's no potential huge upside for stars in success, but at least they are upfront about it from the get-go and you know what you're getting into. What Warner Media and, and HBO, what they were dealing with, was again this changed circumstance? The talent does a deal under one paradigm, and all of a sudden, their movie is unilaterally being changed to another paradigm. Potentially, I mean, if you look at the box office for that Denzel movie, The Little Things, mm-hmm. it was tiny, tiny. Now, granted, it was released in I believe January or February, right. when there were no vaccines widely available, and you know it wouldn't have done any uh, any number regardless. Um, But you could make an argument that Denzel's movie should have been pushed to a place where it could have been released in theaters and done uh, a a number at the box office. But Denzel didn't care because he was paid as if it were a hit. So he can go about his normal course of business and not care about that. Um, Some of these other stars at Disney were upset because Disney didn't do that. Disney only said, we will put the home video revenue into the box office pool. We will not pay you As if this was a hit, we will not buy you out. And you have stars of these day-and-day movies like Emma Stone in Cruella and Emily Blunt in Jungle Cruise and Scarlett Johansson. They are the ones that are really in the crosshairs here because they did a deal under one paradigm and it was released in another.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it, it really is interesting kind of looking at how all of these deals are structured in, in your, in one of your uh, recent newsletters, you know, you, you have this, uh, you, you talk a little bit about Disney socialism, right? Uh, the, the SBEs and how it's kind of up, up, upending the world of superstar economics. Um, could you, could you talk a little bit about how those are structured and, and how it differs from, uh, a, a more traditional, uh, contract or, or buyout? Sure, that's in television. Uh, that's a big distinction. So the SBE right.
1: is a contract term that has been instituted by Disney-owned television outlets, which includes, you know, the the Fox Television Studio, ABC, Hulu, Freeform, um, a lot of these these Disney-owned production companies. And what it's essentially done is replace a traditional back end, which is where you get paid an upfront fee plus points on the back end of a series where once the series gets into profits um, or bre- or usually a break-even territory you get a percentage of revenue from all these different pools disney has been trying to eliminate that and to replace it with a system that gives you bonuses based on certain thresholds whether it's uh, a series being renewed or a certain episode number hitting or um, you know, you, you, you get to a certain Nielsen rating um, for, for linear television. They are more objective barometers of what success, quote unquote, is in the television world. And they are not dependent on these long formulas that can get up to 20, 30 pages defining how you are paid in each revenue pool, many of which have led to lawsuits. We've seen some very high-priced lawsuit verdicts against companies, including Disney. There was a famous one over the Bones television Mm -hmm. series, which uh, was produced by Fox and aired on the Fox network for many years. And the profit participants on that show, including David Boreanaz and uh, um, Emily Deschanel and a couple of the creators, they said, essentially, this show, which was made by Fox, was being licensed to Hulu, in which Fox had an interest for an artificially low price that cheated these profit participants out of money. It's the standard argument that's been made for decades, ever since these television studios were allowed to be owned by the networks that broadcast their show. Mm-hmm. So they had to audit, they had to sue, and an arbitrator ultimately, initially it was a $150 million verdict, got cut down to a, around 50 or something million, but It was an embarrassing loss for Disney, which had since owned, uh, bought all the Fox assets. So they're trying to eliminate these lawsuits. And when you agree to an SBE definition, it significantly diminishes your right and ability to sue over these issues and puts a more objective term into the deal. Now, some say that that's a good thing on the talent side. You know what you're going to get. You go into it saying, okay, we get a three-season renewal. I get X amount of money. If we get, um, you know, we're the top 10 show, according to Nielsen, we get X amount of money. Those are more are more um, uh, objective, objective measures, but it doesn't give you the home run. Mm-hmm. The home run is the two and a half men, Big Bang Theory, Modern Family, these massive hits that play all over the world that have syndication revenue for 10, 20, 30 years, that can turn a TV writer into a multi, multi, multi-millionaire, that kind of a deal is going away. And that's also what Disney wants to do here is eliminate the windfall that goes to some of these creators. And that's been controversial.
0: Yeah. And Disney's argument here is, hey, you're working with our IP. The IP is the star here, right? It's, it's not you, the showrunner, or what, what is the term that Disney uses instead of showrunner, the head writer or something? They want to make it clear that, you know, they, the, the writers are not in charge. This is uh, Disney and Disney IP, um, right? I mean, that, that's basically what's happening.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, with exceptions, but especially when you work on a Marvel or a Star Wars show, um, there, Those deals are the worst for the writers and producers because the expectation is that the talent is somewhat in, interchangeable. Now, they, they don't describe it that way, but they're not going to break the bank on major talents because they say you are, in a sense, uh, lucky to be working with the Obi-Wan Kenobi character or with, you know, WandaVision or with these, you know, big, big ip driven shows that are going to generate an audience online, not because you TV writer are so great, but because there is so much interest in the Obi-Wan Kenobi character. So they use that in order to suppress the amount of money that they are paying to these talents. Now, you can argue whether that's reasonable or not, but it's a fact. And Disney is being the most aggressive on that. Other studios are trying to uh, extract more concessions when you take over a pre-branded a package like a DC show or, um, you know, you go into a, you know, Jurassic World movie or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not, you know, it's not a new concept, but it's getting much more aggressive in the streaming era because so many of these streamers are leaning on their franchises and developing show after show, movie after movie based on these pre-branded franchises and the talent that is being hired to work on them are getting less money. Yeah.
0: I mean there there unless is unless you're someone
1: like John Favreau. John right. Favreau is a right. great exception that proves the rule because he agreed to sign on to this first Star Wars show and to take a character nobody had ever heard of and turn it into something and it ended up being the launch, you know, linchpin for Disney Plus. And I don't
0: know what his deal is exactly, but I have heard that it is beyond amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm sure. Uh, I mean, it, you know, he he is he's doing his, his thing. But there is there is still a lot of money floating around here. And one of the one of the interesting uh, little nuggets in in one of your recent newsletters was about uh, Jennifer Lawrence and the the movie that she is shopping uh, about uh, legendary agent Sue Sue Menger. Um, but it, it, what what's fascinating about this is that you you basically have a two tier system at this point where Jennifer Lawrence can go to the streamers. And say, I I we need eighty million dollars to make this movie and I get paid twenty million of it and every, and they're fighting each other. You know, Apple and Netflix are fighting each other and the studios are kind of like, no thanks. We cannot that is not a thing for us, right? I mean it it is it's a it's a it's a, it's a weird it's a weird inversion of the same kind of idea in terms of money and totally because it,
1: it, it speaks to the place we're at right now in the entertainment ecosystem where a traditional studio that is reliant on box office and traditional revenue streams after that can no longer afford to take a risk on an $80 million character-driven small market project like this Jennifer Lawrence project where she's playing an unknown talent agent from the 1970s. But if you are a streaming service and you are trying to attract buzz and Oscar attention and you don't rely on box office, and you have unlimited money because your stock price is through the roof because investors are betting on the fact that your subscriber numbers are going to keep going up, that proposition makes a lot more sense. And you're seeing these streaming services bidding each other up on these prices because they want to be the one that's in business with Jennifer Lawrence on a movie that they will be able to market as an Oscar nominee. So Apple and Netflix, in this case, are both bidding on this project for the privilege of paying Jennifer Lawrence more than twenty million dollars to play an unknown talent agent.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I always get a little bit of. Uh, pushback from people when I when I mention these uh, Oscar, you know, worthy type projects for Netflix or Apple or whoever, in in the sense that people people often reply, well Hollywood is gonna like why would Hollywood the trade uh, you know the 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 big trade award show that they throw on every year, why would they do it and award studios that are essentially actively trying to destroy Hollywood um, in terms of the, the business model that they have in the studio system and all that. Do you think that in the next year or two or three, we're going to get to a point where all of the actual Oscar contenders are these sorts of projects? Or is it is it still going to be competitive enough with the studios? Are they still going to be able to afford to make this sort of movie that is both uh, appeals to audiences and can attract Oscar attention?
1: I think that's a great question.
0: Um, I don't know the answer
1: to that, but I think that there is still within the Academy, there is still traditionalist pushback against the streaming services. If you notice that of all the hundreds of millions of dollars that Netflix has spent on awards campaigns and trying to normalize its release strategy for these big high budget movies with Martin Scorsese and Alejandro Iñárritu and others, um, they still never won Best Picture. And this past year, they had a huge award slate of movies. And the best they did, I believe, was documentary Mm -hmm. and a writing. Maybe it wasn't a writing Mm -hmm. win or something. So, So there is a lot of pushback to this. But that's because there are still movies released in theaters that can play in the award space. So how long does that last? We'll see. You know, there is still a model out there. You see it being done by studios like Fox Searchlight and A24. And to a certain extent by, you know, this year, we've got a Spielberg movie coming from Disney and West Side Story. And we've got, you know, every once in a while, there's a studio movie. Last year it was uh, Judas and the Black Messiah from Warner Brothers. There's a studio movie that does slip in there and get that kind of attention. And then the Academy has been willing to honor things like Black Panther or Get Out. But for the most part, these Oscar Beatty movies that are specifically developed and greenlit with an eye on awards, and the awards are necessary for it to find an audience, Though the model of doing that in theaters and getting the awards buzz and running up a $100 million, $200 million at the box office, that is becoming increasingly fewer and far between. And most of those movies are going to streaming.
0: Yeah, I I have to I have to we I have to ask you about Reese Witherspoon and this this insane nine hundred million dollar deal. You know, a is it actually nine hundred million dollars from your newsletter? I know it's not. We, we let's talk about what the actual number there is. Um, but but B, I also just want to I, I want to drill down into this idea that the 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 stars today have to be entrepreneurs. You know, your Ryan Reynolds and your Mark Wahlberg's and your Gwyneth Paltrow's. Um, I, how 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 does that work for them in terms of not only Branding, obviously, their their self branding, but also in terms of the movies they make and how they they sell them to either streaming companies or or studios or whoever.
1: Well, you can look at it two ways. First, you can look at it top down, and the stars trying to you know capitalize on their fame. But you can also look at it bottom up. And when I say bottom up, I mean you know there used to be this this uh, snobbery about people like the Kardashians or even Gwyneth Paltrow, these people who have kind of leveraged their fame to create businesses around them. But then, over the past 5 years, we've seen the entire rise of the creator economy, where entire businesses are being built on the back of TikTok stars, or people who do a funny dance on Instagram, or things like that. And in that context, you look at someone like Reese Witherspoon, whose company has a book club with 2 million followers on Instagram. And they produce a very specific kind of content in women-focused shows or streaming services like Big Little Lies or The Morning Show or Little Fires Everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then you start to think about the kind of businesses that can be built around someone like Reese Witherspoon to capitalize on her celebrity and her relationship with fans. And the fact that she's built infrastructure in this company, Hello Sunshine, that can take advantage of that. And and they call it community and commerce, the two C's along with content. And if you can actually put those together, it's a pretty compelling business. Now, is it a $900 million business? No, but if you look at that deal, it's not $900 million, it's $500 million upfront, which is a lot of money and many say it's still overpaying, but that goes to pay off her investors, it goes to fund operations, it goes to put a little bit of money in her pocket, But what it also does is it gives them $400 million in equity in this new company that is being created by a couple of former Disney executives and with backing from a big private equity firm, Blackstone. They are going to try to roll up a bunch of these similar types of production companies, create a mega behemoth production company that can then be sold to someone, whether it's another investor or whether it's a streaming service like Apple or Amazon or Netflix or one of the others. That may want to buy this. So in that context, it, it makes a little bit more sense. I don't know if it if the number still pencils out. You know, in a traditional uh, multiple against earnings and your financial uh, uh, drawing up of a deal, it probably still doesn't make sense. But there is a a compelling business argument to be made for a premium. Star slash ultimate influencer
0: deal like this. Yeah, it is. It it really is interesting, and it's totally under my radar because I'm not in the target audience. But I, you know, it it is a it's a huge. It's a huge number and a huge deal. I, I wanted to ask you, and I don't know if you can talk about this at all, really, but I, I, I did want to ask a little bit about the. Uh, there was a a big uh, lawsuit uh, against uh, who wants to be a millionaire and how that money was split up. That you were you were kind of part of, and, and, and just from your perspective, your POV, looking at how that played out then to how everything is playing out now. Do you, do you think things have changed a great deal, or is it is it still the same kind of basic world that we're all? living in and working under?
1: Well, first of all, stars and creators have been claiming they've been screwed by studios since the dawn of the studio age. And uh, in many cases, they are right. In some cases, they're wrong. And so I, I just want to say, this is not a new concept. Um, you know, my role on the millionaire case, just uh, to be totally forthcoming, is I was a junior associate at a law firm that represented the creators of Who Wants to be a Millionaire? So I was probably the seventh or eighth totem on the poll for for that case. I did work on it. Um, I left the firm to become a journalist before it went to trial. So I was not involved in the actual litigating at trial of it. Um, So I feel comfortable commentating on it. Um, In that case, it was a very, very interesting situation. Because if you remember, if you're old enough to remember, who wants to be a millionaire? At one point in the late 90s, early 2000s, was on ABC almost every single night. Yeah. They would run it five nights in a row. They would just play the crap out of that show. And it was hugely successful. It was done as a format deal where it was a popular show overseas. They brought it to America, put Regis Philbin in it. And the deal, the initial deal was like on the back of a napkin, that type of thing. And what ended up happening was based on Disney's accounting and how they accounted for revenue and losses on the show. They did not properly show how much of a profit generator that show was. And it was very, very complicated, the different pools and the revenue streams and the participation, all that. But it got in front of a jury and a jury essentially was like, hey, this was your number one show and you're really gonna try to claim that these people who invented the show and aired it originally aren't entitled to share in that that was essentially what the jury decided and it was a if i remember correctly it was a 319 million dollar verdict which at the time was the largest of uh um, of all time on these kinds of claims yeah. and disney actually paid it they settled the case and paid that um, B because they announced on a subsequent earnings call, I believe it was a, a write down or a charge that they had taken for legal settlements, which had to be this. Right. So it it was a it was a huge loss for Disney. Something that you know the kind of thing where you reassess um, your entire business practice around a certain type of thing, and and they chalked it up to this being you know the dawn of the reality TV era. The deals were not, you know, set in stone as to how these things were to be accounted for. It was a unique situation because it was a game show, so they could air it over and over. And it was one of those things where they benefited from having the same contestants on night after night. So it was a unique situation, but it was, it was a typical type of claim where someone who has a profit interest in a show claims self-dealing when the owner of the show... And the network that airs the show are the same people. Yeah
0: uh all right uh, well that that was about everything I wanted to ask. could you could you tell uh, my listeners about Puck a little bit? i sure. I, I do want I want to give people a a, a a intro to to your guys' site because I think it's going to be really exciting. I think it's it's you guys got a a, a lot of good talent lined up there.
1: yeah we're, we're launching around Labor Day and uh, you can go to puck.news and and sign up right now it's, it's the, the premise is essentially it's a, a next generation media platform covering the power centers of America. Hollywood, Wall Street, technology, and politics. Uh, we've got great writers coming from outlets that have uh, covered this stuff in the past, um, and it's going to be a, 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 web, a member website. There's newsletters. You mentioned my newsletter. What I'm what I'm hearing, um, and it's kind of the story behind the story. What what typically doesn't make it out there into the mainstream press is where we are picking up and giving you inside access.
0: Yeah like I said, uh, you guys gotta sign up for what I'm hearing. It's great. I learn something every time I read it, uh, which is the the nicest thing I can say about any newsletter and I subscribe to a lot of newsletters. Um, so uh, sign up for that. Uh, check out Puck. Is there anything else I should have asked? I, I always like to end these interviews by asking if there's anything people should know uh, about your area of expertise, if there's any what, what is what's going on in the world of business of Hollywood that, that folks should know about that we haven't discussed here today?
1: Um, I think, you know, we touched on it a little, but just the general nervousness that's permeating the industry because of this decline in box office and rise of streaming services. And people don't quite know how to handle this and who to trust and where the incentives are. And, you know, really what the future of this business is going to look like in five, 10 years.
0: Yeah, Uh, well, Matt, thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, Everybody, go check out uh, his newsletter, and I'll link to it in the in the email. Check that out, uh, and we'll uh, be back next week with another episode of the Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. See you guys then.